Welcome to Workforce Rx with Paturo Health, where future-focused leaders in education, workforce development, and healthcare explore new innovations and approaches. I'm your host, Fontone Quinlivan, CEO of Paturo Health. Addressing disparities in access to healthcare and social services based on race, income, zip code, and other factors is a big enough challenge. But it is an even bigger, tougher challenge to make progress on that front for older Americans because those inequities tend to compound as we age. On today's podcast, we're going to learn much more about the barriers to older adults getting the support they need to age well and what is being done to provide that support. From Dr. Sarita Mohanty, President and CEO of the SCAN Foundation, a nonprofit working to connect public policy and private sector innovation to accelerate solutions in this space. Dr. Mohanty has had many years of experience in leadership positions in care coordination, health management, and public health insurance. She is currently an associate professor at the Kaiser Permanente Bernard J. Tyson School of Medicine and a practicing internal medicine physician. Earlier this year, she was named to the Forbes 50 over 50 list. Thanks so much for joining us today, Sarita. I am so thrilled to be here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, we're glad to have you, and I would love for you to get started by sharing an overview of the SCAN Foundation. How are you working to achieve the mission of people aging well at home and in their communities? Yeah, absolutely. So I am fortunate to be part of the SCAN Foundation, serving as the president and CEO. I have been with the organization almost three years now, and we are an independent public charity. We are focused on all of us aging well with purpose. That is really our vision statement because our current aging infrastructure does not serve all Americans equitably. We need policies, we need private sector investments and community support that will really help enable an equitable system. So our work at the SCAN Foundation is really focused on what we call our priority populations, which are persons of color, individuals from lower incomes, particularly those at or below the 400% federal poverty limit, and then those living in what we call underrepresented geographies, rural settings, health deserts. And our mission is really to ignite bold and equitable solutions that advance the way people can age well in home and communities. So innovation, scalable solutions that kind of address those critical barriers and risks that these particular priority populations are facing, from healthcare to financial security and housing, and even biases in data collection and application and more. So that's really what the SCAN Foundation is all about. Ooh, I love that phrase, ignite bold and equitable solutions. So before we uh, deep dive into the topics that you mentioned, Mm -hmm. help us, Sarita, understand the magnitude of the issue. So we hear all kinds of numbers about the aging of America and its current and future impacts in all areas of society and economy. What are some of the facts about this demographic that stand out to you and that you think everyone should care about? So really, when we think about California, uh, which is where a lot of our work resides, but we also work nationally, uh, what's striking is that this population as a whole is not only aging, but becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. We know that by 2030, one in four Californians will be older adults. And by 2034, the United States will comprise more older adults and children. And people of color will make up nearly half of the nation's 
older adult population in 2060. The most significant growth there is really in the older Hispanic adult populations. We are thinking about planning for the future. You know, as a philanthropic organization, we want to ensure that services are culturally sensitive, equitable, and again, responsive to the needs of this older adult population. So that's really something to understand and be aware of as a society. The other thing, not a big surprise, but the number of older adults experiencing chronic conditions and disability will also increase. According to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, 6 in 10 U.S. adults experience a chronic condition. More than 70% of Americans age 65 and older will need some sort of long-term services and support. That could be helping with their activities of daily living, getting them to appointments, helping with eating and bathing, those type of things. And half turning 65 today will need that kind of high level of help. So we have to be thinking about that. In addition, one in seven of all older adults will need help with everyday activities for five or more years. Those are some of the statistics that we think we just need to be aware of. The last thing I'll just say is affording aging. This has become more challenging with the rising cost of housing and increased cost of living. And that's going to lead to barriers in being able to age well in your home and community. And nearly half of California's unhoused adults age 50 and older, 44% are experiencing homelessness for the first time. Um, so there's a lot of overrepresentation in the homelessness rates. And older Black Californians, this is a staggering statistic, are five times more likely to become homeless than their white counterparts. Well, those are sh- striking statistics. So you mentioned planning services. California has a master plan for aging that touches on housing, health, equity, inclusion, and caregiving, as well as financial security, all relating back to the topics that you've mentioned. What's your assessment on how well that is being implemented and what state policy changes are still needed? Well, we call it the multi-sector plan for aging across the United States. In California, it is called the master plan for aging, and I will use the acronym MPA for short. This is a blueprint. This is a way for a state like California to say, okay, what are the key priorities to help people age well with purpose so they don't have to deal with a fragmented system? And how can we have a more coordinated system that that really reflects the needs and wants of older adults? So that's really the emphasis of, of an MPA. And we're still in the early stages of the implementation. We're in year three of this 10-year plan. But I think there's several, you know, kind of positive outcomes we should note. One is that one of the biggest things that came out of the planning for the MPA was this sustained cross-sector effort. And what do I mean by that? Thankfully, the MPA has initiated a lot of cross-sector relationships and trust building as a result of a collaborative effort. So you have advocacy organizations, including disability, you got private sector, you got public sector, you have philanthropy, you have other community stakeholders, academia, health plans, all coming together to say, okay, how do we think about this plan? So that includes coming together, data collection, aggregation, and to inform and plan and monitor progress. So that's really one positive outcome, I would say, is that sustained cross-sector relationship network that the MP has afforded. Second, we've expanded access to Medi-Cal coverage in California through this work and this involvement of the MPA 
constituents. Um, we've had historic investments in adult, older adult behavioral health services. We have an increase in the supplementary payment grant, or SSP, for people on SSI, which is the supplemental security income. That provides additional income to nearly 560,000 low-income older adults. That's a really important step in support of older adults. What is still needed? You know, you ask this question, what do we still need to be able to move forward. We have to embed equity and diversity in every, every step of the MPA. Uh, we have to sharpen our focus. That has been a key driver and emphasis, but how do we do that? We have to think about every initiative, every investment, every policy change. Is it making inequities worse? Or how are we making sure that we are addressing lower income communities of color? That's one piece. CDA, the California Department of Aging, is creating an equity index for MPA implementation to help with that policy decision-making. So that's one. Uh, the second one is that the state has to take action to build a home care system that works for all Californians. When we think about older adults, one area that is a big gap is this group called the forgotten middle. This is the population that is unlikely to qualify for Medi-Cal, but still does not have the sufficient resources to pay for housing and care options that they need and want. So that is an area of focus. We got to make sure that they have resources and the supports available to them. Otherwise, they're going to have to spend down their assets to qualify for Medicaid or, you know, California, we call it Medi-Cal, and then get those services. So that's another piece. And then the third thing is just about improving financial security and addressing homelessness. You know, the statistics I've mentioned People don't have enough savings to take care of themselves in home and community, and then they often have to go to institutions. We really appreciate that the SCAN Foundation is there to provide advocacy and keep all the stakeholders on task. I was wondering from a workforce lens, accompanying the trend of growing 65 plus population, isn't there also a proportionally shrinking population of the adults who can provide care to them? How do you think about the, the workforce issues associated with aging well? This is a real challenge for us as a society. You know, when we go reflect back on the statistics I mentioned about a growing aging population, there's a growing demand for long-term services and supports. And there is a clear shortage of direct care workers to meet that demand. That is the challenge. And paid caregivers contribute to society in really important ways. Their work is some of the most physically demanding and mentally taxing, as you know, Vaughn. And they perform at minimum wage at all hours of the day. And these jobs, I think one of the things is our need of what we call professionalization. We need to be able to recognize the criticality of these roles. And there has to be payment and supports attached to those paid caregivers to be able to do this really important work. And we also can't forget that many of these workers are unpaid family caregivers, caregiving in their time off, and they're unable to save for their own retirement and their long-term needs. So what are they going to do as they're aging when oftentimes they're having to support their loved ones? And so this gets into the realm of things like financial security that I mentioned, that we have to work not only on the financial security of those that are in their later years of life, but start early and really start to think about ways and supports on savings for younger generations so they can plan as they get older. Uh, speaking about payments to caregiver, including the family members who provide free care, are you seeing any 
path forward or any promising practices here or in any other state or country, as a matter of fact? Yes. Yeah, so some of the things that we're seeing and we're evaluating with the state and monitoring California, but also across the country is going back to this group called the Forgotten Middle, which is that bucket of older adults that don't have long-term care. Are there ways for opt-in or a buy-in or even a payroll tax? You know, the state of Washington has a payroll tax where you can have some of that savings available to help you when you need services in your home and community because there's a financial obviously this huge financial risk as a state to do that and what we're recognizing even something like a payroll tax is not going to cover all the costs when a long-term care facility is going to cost over a hundred thousand a year that is some of the analysis that is going on right now and also on the caregiving side i know there's been a lot of emphasis on a caregiving tax a caregiver tax tax credit But I think actuarially, a lot of people are looking at how sustainable are these credits, these buy-ins, payroll taxes. So more to come. I should say the state of California is in that process. They have a long-term care committee that is doing some analyses right now. We should be seeing the results of that. We're hoping by early, mid-2024. Now share for us what's being done and needs to be done to help older residents in geographically underserved areas, Sarita. Yeah, so we firmly believe that if we improve the aging experience for older adults with lower incomes, older people of color and older residents of underserved communities, we will improve it for everyone. And rural communities are a critical part of that because I think most can recognize that when you live in rural settings, there's data that suggests that they have less access to primary care, certainly specialty care. And if they don't have transportation, how do they get to their services for specialty care in a timely way? And so These are kind of some of the things we're working on. Uh, One example I want to mention about rural supports is that we, the SCAN Foundation, have partnered with our, what we're calling the California Advocacy Network, which includes California Collaborative of Long-Term Services and Supports and nearly 20 regional coalitions to advance important dialogue around the development we're calling local MPAs, Local Master Plans for Aging. And so when it comes to um, why this is important for rural regions to be engaged in their local MPAs, all communities, urban, suburban, rural, have to be supported by a rural MPA. And what we're finding is that there are some important areas of need that these rural MPA stakeholders are identifying. Things like I cannot get to an appointment in a timely way. I can't get into a senior appointment for a primary care provider in my jurisdiction, in my rural community for a month. You know, those type of things and you know, food that is not readily available to me, like healthy food. So there's a lot of things. And that's what these rural MPAs, these coalitions are doing is they're identifying them. And then they're actually even advocating, even at a policy level, saying, okay, who do I talk to in my local jurisdiction? Which policymakers do I need to talk to to say these need to be addressed? We're um, working on those right now. We have, I think, funded three county-level regional coalitions in California. They're representing Butte, Glen, Kings, Riverside, San Bernardino, Shasta, and Tulare counties to co-create a rural MPA. Uh, So those are some of the things that I think it's important for rural regions to be engaged in this process. With respect to the learnings from structuring these local MPAs, are there playbooks that you would recommend to other states or has this strategy incorporated some learnings from other states? What are some of the best practice you'd like to point to? Yeah, and we actually uh, readily share playbooks. We are one philanthropic organization supporting this. There's many others who are involved 
If you reach out to us, he could direct you to our website. We have access to those playbooks, the local playbooks, Ventura County. There's many that have done some really remarkable work on the creation of these playbooks, addressing like how do we how do we think about access to services and transportation and things that are really crucial for their communities. The other thing is that we actually have supported the Center for Healthcare Strategies with other philanthropic organizations to actually bring, convene, and provide technical assistance to other states who are interested in creating their own MPA, whether it's at the state level and then ultimately even at the local level. So we are we're definitely giving back. This is not just a California effort. This is something that we want to see scaled. We would love to see every state in the United States have an MPA, multi-sector plan for aging. Happy to share that. Any information we can provide to this audience, we'd be happy to do so. So as um, MPAs get together and these stakeholders deliberate on access to services and equitable services, what is the assumption in terms of who should be paying to support older Americans in aging well? Yeah, this is a this is a very complex question to answer, as you as you probably know. <laughs> um, I think a lot of people recognize, or at least most can see, that the financing, the whole administration of programs is fragmented, and it's quite siloed, actually. And services range from federal supports, state supports, supports offered by local communities, like volunteer programs, there's philanthropy, there's private sector. I believe, and I, I firmly believe, you know, society has a vested interest, quite honestly, in supporting older adults, given that they significantly contribute to the communities throughout their lives. Therefore, I think it's important for various stakeholders, including governments, community, families, everyone, to work together to ensure these adequate supports for older Americans. So I guess the answer to your question is complex. We have Social Security, we have Medicare, we have Medicaid, we have pensions, we have private health insurance, we can go into those funding sources. But there's a confusion. There's a vast confusion among beneficiaries, among older adults and families. And there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of blame shifting even regarding who is ultimately responsible. So one of the things we are hoping as a foundation to do is to better demonstrate how complex this web of supports is. To say like, okay, let's lay it out on the table. It is complex. Can we identify the potential touch points and better understand who is it and who should be responsible for what? We're not there yet. I don't think we have the answer to your question, but our role, again, in that process, and I think we all have to come together, is engage cross-sector leaders in research, convenings, policy solutions that start to address some of this complexity and better center aging adults in this work. So we we need to say to them, okay, what do you understand, what you don't understand, and how do we help you navigate this complex array of funding sources better. You know, welcome ideas, thoughts on this, because this is a journey that, like I said, it's not one entity at this point. Well, my takeaway in in hearing you uh, explain the situation is that there's probably not enough resources to go around. And so how do you make the resources that exist yeah. be additive and braided so that they're not siloed, right? Yeah, yeah, we have to have braided solutions. Absolutely, absolutely. Um. You, you previously spoke about the in-home direct care workforce and the need to professionalize that. I know the California Department of Aging has grants in order to provide trainings and incentives for workers to stay in their job after doing the training because Futuro Health is one of the partners there. 
But I'd love to give you another opportunity to talk about any further workforce needs that are out there to accomplish your mission in terms of the home care or related services. We touched on the unpaid caregivers, the family caregivers. I think recognizing the supports they're going to need is critical financially, physically, mentally, emotionally. There's a lot of work underway as we even think about Medicare, Medicare Advantage plans, working with older adults, that they're recognizing that this is not just about the older adult, it's about the caregivers. So they talk about the family caregivers. I think that's critical. I think on the unpaid caregiving side, the things that I mentioned, the gaps are wages and making sure that they're getting the same recognition and reward for the hard work that they're doing. And then the supports, you know, they need to have all their access to healthcare. And especially in a state like California, where affordability is a challenge, a lot of people are leaving this workforce because it's not financially feasible. I'm a physician and I actually still do some clinical practice. And what I'm also seeing, I mentioned this earlier, is the challenge around People leaving the the licensed workforce, for example, most people are not going into primary care through medical school. A lot of people are leaving primary care or shortening their percentage of time because they are burnt out or they're doing more tasks than they are actually doing the clinical work that they sometimes want to do. So there's a lot of work underway. I will say one thing I like to call out, which I think is interesting, promising, and a little scary, is the role of artificial intelligence to help support workers, whether it's nurses, whether it's physician assistants, nurse practitioners, or physicians, to help them lessen the burden of the the tasks so that they can do the work of the scope of practice. And then the last thing I would just say is the community health worker model. Those with lived experience, those that reside in the community, helping people support in this case, older adults where they are and where they want to be. You'll see there's a lot of now incentives. State Medi-Cal, Medicaid are starting to support or cover community health workers or plans or are hiring community health workers, but that also has to be recognized as a professional service. So those are some of the areas I think we're seeing emerging. A lot of good data already suggests that models like community health workers are really critical, but we have to address the burnout and the pipeline. I know you're working on that. A lot of pipeline development has to continue in our efforts collectively. Well, speaking about data, part of the SCAN Foundation's focus is on data collection and analysis. And frankly, that could be sort of the grounding for conversations between disparate stakeholders. So tell us more about what you're doing on the data front to make an impact. Data is incredibly powerful. We know that. Yet What we're seeing, unfortunately, is that aging and health policies and systems at both the national and state level remain fragmented and do not not reflect the needs and preferences of older adults. It's still happening, particularly in our priority populations. So both qualitative and quantitative data are critical to develop effective solutions. Data has to be disaggregated by population. We got to look at duals, dual eligibles. We got to look at that forgotten middle. We got to look at by base ethnicity. And we have to center the person's perspective in all of this. And that's sometimes hard to do in quantitative work. Now, I will say the few things the SCAN Foundation has done on the quantitative side, just a few quick examples. We have supported the AARP 
public policy institutes long-term services and supports scorecard, which kind of looks at measures state performance on providing what we call high quality care for older adults, people with disabilities and family caregivers. And that's been a great advocacy tool for moving the needle on supporting more family caregivers, rebalancing state Medicaid funding from institutional services to more community-based services, et cetera. So that's one piece. The other one, we were working with that Office of Medicare Innovation and Integration Department in California, and they've actually used data and we've helped support this to survey older adults to improve the state's understanding of its Medicare population. And what about those ones that are near income eligibility for Medi-Cal? How do we start to work with those folks? How do we think about that forgotten middle? Now, I will say individuals' experiences, attitudes, and behaviors is just difficult to capture quantitatively. And so we are actually bringing on a whole array of work at the SCAN Foundation to highlight the lived experiences. We actually have just recently partnered with an organization called the Public Policy Lab. They are establishing a research pool of older adults from diverse geographies across the United States, focusing on persons of color, lower income, those in the rural areas. Those researchers are embedding themselves in the community and they're conducting in-person interviews with each older adult participant on topics ranging from models of care and financing, technology, financial security. And so that's one. And we're going to get some critical insights, some personas, and some real lived experience that should augment and, and help us understand the needs and wants of older adults. I mean, we are doing a lot of work on health equity. We're going to actually fund three California-based organizations in 2024. That's going to consist of eco-groups, equity community organizing groups of older adults and local stakeholders, really demonstrating diverse perspectives. And they're going to drive the planning and solutions for those inequities in their community. So lived experience, that is my take home. We can't drive change with just quantitative data, I would say. The stories that they tell will be really powerful. Very powerful, yes. Bring life to the data. Exactly. So let's end with a future of care conversation. Mm -hmm. If we were to invite Sarita to have a clean slate, how would you craft a future of care for the aging that you would like? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think first and foremost, you know, I go back to that we are a fragmented system of care. We lack the care coordination that we need in our systems, and we don't have enough of a seamless focus on the individual. If I had that clean slate, I would say we got to have a system where we have visibility and navigation to all the supports out there. One of the things that the state of California is doing as part of the MPA work is trying to create what they're calling a no wrong door approach, which is basically I'm a family member of, like, let's say, my mother and she needs a service. I can go somewhere and somebody will tell me, here are the five resources you could go to, or if you need more help, go to this location. Or even things like, I don't know what Medicare Advantage plan I should go to, or I don't know what Medicare even covers. Like a lot of people think Medicare covers long-term care. It only covers 100 days of institutional care. That's it. So there's a lot of misconception. How do we start to break down that misconception? So for me, we need a seamless navigation portal and approach that makes it simple, easy for everyone to go to. The other thing is making sure that we address the housing and the financial security crisis 
And I think for us, it is really starting early. We as a society starting earlier in our planning about what we need to age well. It's not even just for the older adult, but even for the younger generations. You know, if I had a clean slate, we would have a seamless approach path supports to avert having to lose their home and be on the streets because we're seeing more of it in this population. And then I think technology. I will just say technology, it is going fast and furious. We have to be on top of how these technology, AI, machine learning is going to artificial intelligence solutions. Well, we learned a huge amount from having you spend time with us today. Thank you very much, Dr. Mahanti, for joining us and deciphering uh, all the complexities of aging and healthcare in America. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a real pleasure and it's great to connect with you. Thank you. I'm Vontone Quinlivan with Futura Health. Thanks for checking out this episode of Workforce Rx. I hope you will join us again as we continue to explore how to create a future-focused workforce in America. <music> <music>